Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. When I was in high school and in college, uh, I had some jobs, but I really didn't earn enough money to be taxed. Uh, I just didn't make a whole lot of money because I was involved in sports and volunteering things and things like that. So I didn't have I didn't have a whole lot of money to be taxed, but when I got out of college and I started earning a living and Trisha started earning a living, uh, I was confronted with taxes and it was a rude awakening. Uh, as I discovered, they take about a third of my income. And so I remember lamenting to one of my friends, Luke, at the time, uh, just saying to him, man, this is so crazy. Like, that the gov- like if I work three hours, one of those three hours is going to the government. And I was grumbling about it. I was complaining about it. And I was expecting Luke, like everyone else does, to join in my grumbling and complaining. Uh, but Luke didn't. Luke said, you know, I think a third is actually a pretty good deal. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? And he said, you know, you know th- through our taxes, uh, the government uses it to, play, to pay police officers and to build and to staff prisons, which keep us safe. He's like, I think that's at least worth 20% of my income. Um, on top of that, from those taxes, they use it to uh, pay for uh, teachers and for schools to educate our children. I think that's probably worth another 20% of my income. Not only that, but they actually have a military that guards us from invading armies, which could wipe us out. That's probably worth 80% of my income. Besides that, I mean, they, they also make roads. I really like roads. Roads are great. When the roads get snowed on, they plow the roads. And, and they also, uh, they, they make state parks and national parks and city parks. I think that's worth at least 10% of my income. And so he said, you know, I think, I think a third is a pretty good deal. And at the time, I, I probably said something like, Psh, whatever, dude, like, you know, you gonna eat that French fry? I, that's probably how I responded. Uh, but it's interesting because that conversation has stuck with me uh, even more recently going through tax season. Uh, I was going to pay my taxes uh, no matter what, but that conversation with Luke not, not changed my behavior or my mind, but it changed my heart a little bit towards paying taxes. Don't get me wrong, I still grumble and complain about it a little bit, but it helped me uh, in my heart when I pay taxes. You know, we're in the middle of this two-week series about Christians and government. Last week, uh, we mostly addressed the head and the conduct uh, that God calls us to submit to our governing authorities. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and do that. Uh, but we discovered that God uh, commands everyone to submit to governing authorities because the authorities are placed there by God, because he's given them the power to punish those who, who rebel against them, and because, um, because it's the right thing to do. 
and, and we learn that we submit to them in, in many ways, but one way is just simply by doing good, another way is by paying taxes, another way is by honoring them with our lips and with our hearts. And then our favorite part we learned when we must disobey governing authorities, that's the part we all like the best, right? When can we rage against the man? And, uh, and we must disobey when they command us to do something that is contrary to God's word. And so that, that's what we looked at last week, mostly the, the head and the, the conduct. But this week, God's word is going to address our heart. And it's going to call us not only to uh, submit with our actions, but actually to submit with our hearts in a way that is worshipful to God. And so the question we have before us today is how do we submit to to authorities in our life, whether it be governing authorities or parental authorities or, or authorities at the workplace. How do we submit to authorities in our life, not begrudgingly or with complaining, but with a heart of worship, even when we think they are wrong? And that's what is going to be addressed here today in 1 Peter. And so if you would open up to page 1015 in the Red Bible, we are going to be covering a lot of of, uh, of scripture today, verse 9 through 25. And so just for the sake of time, I want to start by zeroing in on verse 13 through 17. And so if you would read uh, along with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. This is God's word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It is authoritative. It is right. It is true. It is good. It is nourishment to our souls. Help us to receive your word with humility and to put it into practice, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, last week's sermon was a little bit more academic in, in looking at the command to submit to governing authorities, but today we want to really look at the heart. Uh, we are called to make all of life uh, an act of worship. We are to worship in all of life. So how do we submit to governing authorities with a heart of worship? Well, first we see it is by reclaiming our national identity, reclaiming our national identity. As we read this passage, it's important to know who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to exiles in Asia Minor. Uh, this is a, and he's not just writing to everyone, he's writing to the church. He's writing to the people of God. And these are people of different ethnicities, people who speak different languages, but all people who are under the authority of the Roman Empire. And he says this to them in verse 9. He says, but you, it's literally y'all, uh, the church, corporate, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's camp on this verse for a little bit. 
In this, in this verse, this wonderful verse, which honestly could probably be four or five sermons in and of itself, uh, Peter is using terminology from the Old Testament that God used to apply to Israel, his chosen people. Uh, and he uses this terminology, Peter does, and applies it now to the church to show us that the church is a continuation of the people of God. And so the church is a very important institution that is created by God and is valuable to God. And he, he lays out uh, these descriptions of the church. And so I want to look at these very briefly. First off, he says, we are a chosen race. Uh, the word used here for chosen is the same word used just a few verses earlier to describe Jesus as the chosen one of God. It's used earlier in 1 Peter in the opening to say that we are the four loved ones of God, that God loved us before the beginning of the world. And so what we learn here is that what makes the church a race is not the color of our skin. It's not uh, where we live in the world. What makes us a race is that we have been chosen by God, that we have been loved by God. We are a race that includes every race on the face of the earth. We are a chosen and beloved race of God. He goes on and says that we are also a royal priesthood. Earlier in this passage, he talked about priesthood and our vertical relationship with God, that we can now go to God directly because of Christ, our great high priest. In this passage, he's talking about the, vert the, the horizontal dimension of our priesthood that we are called to be ambassadors of Christ, that in some ways we are bridges between a holy God and sinful people. And we'll see how here in a little bit. He goes on and says that we are a holy nation. Uh, holy means that we are set apart. So we are a, a nation within nations, throughout nations, as the people of God. And we have been set apart by God and for God to be blessed by God. Fourth, we see here that the church is called God's possession. This means that we do not primarily belong uh, to any nation on this earth, nor do we even primarily belong to ourselves. But primarily, you belong to God. Like children belong to their parents, we belong to the Lord. We are his prized and cherished possession. Now, verse 9 tells us that this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation has a national agenda. You see it here at the end of verse nine. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We probably don't have an appreciation for darkness as the first audience did that Peter was writing to. I mean, we have flashlights and street lights and every, everywhere we go, pretty much there's light available to us. But the people in Peter's stage would have known what it was like to be in a boat at night where you can see nothing, where the waves can, can throw you to and fro and you can run into rocks and you can sink. They knew what it was like to walk from one city to another city in the midst of absolute darkness and you would stumble over things. Darkness in the Bible represents confusion and chaos, spiritual and mental blindness. And this is where all of us were, but God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he has done this so that we can proclaim his excellencies. Not only to those still in darkness, which is so important, but just to proclaim his excellencies throughout our days. 
You see, when we proclaim the excellency of God, even in our private devotions, even in prayer, even as we're driving down the road, not only are we praising him, but we're also enjoying him. C.S. Lewis once said it this way. He says, we delight to praise what we enjoy. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Let me explain it this way. Grandmas and grandpas love to praise their grandchildren to anyone who will listen. As a matter of fact, they love to do it to people who won't listen. They just love to praise their grandchildren because the praising of their grandchildren not only expresses their enjoyment of their grandchildren, it actually completes the enjoyment of them. And so as the people of God, we were created to proclaim the excellencies of God because not only does it communicate his glory to those who don't know him, but it completes our enjoyment of God. Verse 10 continues, reminding the church of our identity. It says in verse 10, once you were not a people, talking about Jews and Gentiles and people of different backgrounds, but now you are God's people. The way Peter identifies the people of God here uh, is in contrast to really a, 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 an isolated, churchless American Christianity. Maybe you have heard people say this before. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I don't need to be around the church. I got a thing with Jesus. We got a good thing going. I don't need the church. But here Peter is emphatic that God himself has made you into a people, the church, and that you are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. He, come, he continues and he says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we become a part of this holy nation, not because we are holy in our conduct, but because God is merciful to us. And so if we had a pledge of allegiance, we would say that we are one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and mercy for all. Not justice, but mercy for all. Paul concludes our primary national identity in verse 11 in a very strange way. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. An exile is someone who is not in their country. A sojourner is someone who's traveling through a foreign country, hopefully to their home country eventually. And he's reminding us as the church that we are exiles in this world, that this is not our home, and that we are sojourning. We are on a journey towards the promised land, towards our home. See, the more that we are convinced, the more that we grasp that this life is but a vapor, that we, that we are destined for an eternal and glorious home, the more that we realize that, the more we will live for our heavenly country and, to be honest, be better citizens of our earthly country. Daniel was a great example of this. You know, he was brought in exile out of uh, Jerusalem. He was in Babylon. He was in a, a foreign empire. Uh, he was in exile there. And yet his devotion to God made him a model citizen of that country. So much so that he was raised up through the ranks because of his obedience to Nebuchadnezzar, but also because of wisdom that God had given to him. 
And so as we live for our heavenly country, it makes us better citizens of our earthly country. When I was in seminary, um, they had these things called ministry lunches. And basically the way that they worked is that they would bring food uh, and there would be free food there. And in, in exchange for the seminary students coming for the free food, someone was able to talk to you about some ministry for a while as a way of getting their ministry out and letting people know about it and things like that. And so one day I didn't have a lunch and there was a ministry lunch and they were serving pizza and that's pretty much all I know and I, and, and I knew. And so I went to get the free pizza. Uh, but while I was there, this youth minister in town shared his testimony. It was really an awesome testimony. And he shared about how he grew up in Iraq. And growing up in Iraq, he actually became part of the military there, which I think was maybe something every man had to do there. But he was a part of the military there until he escaped to go to Jordan. Uh, and when he escaped to Jordan at that, at that time, uh, he heard the gospel and he became a Christian. But he said something that was really, really interesting. He said that when he was in uh, Iraq, serving in the military there, um, he, he realized that Saddam Hussein was constantly under the threat of assassination from his own people. Uh, and they would do it in multiple ways. There was multiple threats. But one of those ways was through food, to poison the food. If they could poison the food, they could kill him. And so there was this threat, right, this real threat three times a day that he was going to be poisoned through his food. And so do you know who Saddam Hussein entrusted to be his cooks, to be his, his, his servers? He entrusted Christians, uh, people that weren't even from his own religion, because he could identify that this people lived with a value system that was out of this world a value system that was above the value system of that country. And so he entrusted his life to them. And the only reason they could do this, the only reason they would live with such honor and with such godliness and submission is because they knew that this world was not their home, that they were citizens of a greater country that they were called to live in obedience to. Christians, let me ask, what national identity are you most consumed by? Is it a national identity of being an American, a Canadian, a Republican, a Democrat, or even just living in a democracy? We are challenged here to reclaim our primary national identity as God's people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Once we were not a people, but now we are a people. We are sojourners and exiles in this world. And so how can we submit to our earthly authorities in a posture of worship? First, it is by remembering and reclaiming and recommitting to our primary identity as citizens of heaven. The second, which is connected to it, is by beholding our highest authority at all times. And so here in light of our uh, identity as Christ's church, Peter moves on, uh, commanding us to abstain from passions of the flesh. And then in verse 12, he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, here you see the national agenda of proclaiming the glory of God. Now, how do we live honorable lives as he is telling us to do so before Gentiles? Well, verse 13, he says, be subject or submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, uh, who's the highest human authority in the land, or to governors, the local human authorities, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Here in verse 14, we have a summary of really the, the, the mission of government in general, which is to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Matter of fact, this is probably in some ways a, a mission of every human authority. For parents, they should punish when their kids do evil and praise when they do good. A, a boss should do that. Really, any human authority should do this. Now, the question is, do the governing officials do this perfectly? Of course not. I know dads don't do it perfectly. The governing officials don't do it perfectly. They never have, they never will until Christ returns. And yet, under this imperfect leadership, we are called to submit to the governing authorities because if we do not, the whole, the whole stack of cards falls apart because God has created structure in our society, in our family, in our workplace, and so he calls us to submit. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Again, Christian freedom is often misunderstood to, to think that we can, we, we're free to do whatever we want, right? We can sin like crazy because we're forgiven. But, but Christian freedom is not freedom to do what you want. It's freedom to be who God made you to be. And so he's calling them not to use their freedom in Christ to rebel, but to submit. Verse 17, he summarizes it saying, honor everyone, love the brother, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter then moves into another realm of authority between servants and masters. For us, the application would probably be between employee and employer. Verse 18, he says, servants be subject or submissive to your masters with all respect. Now buckle your seatbelts. He says this, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, right? If, if you're punished for sin, you deserve to be punished. What credit is that to you? Verse 20 continues, says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter takes his submission thing to a whole nother level. <laughs> Not only does he tell us to submit to the authorities that God has placed over us, but he says submit to them even when they are unjust. And the question, again, that we return to is how can we do that with a heart of worship when it seems so unfair, when it seems not right, when it seems even unjust? How can we submit 
with a heart of worship. And what we'll see is that the answer has actually been woven throughout this entire passage multiple times. It's critical to see this. You can underline it in your Bible if you're an underliner. But verse 12, he says that, uh, uh, let me just, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God, right? It's a God-focused submission. We see that again in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And so we don't do it for the sake of the institution or the authorities. Primarily, we do it for God's sake. Verse 15, for this is the will of God. It may not be your will, but it is God's will. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So you're not primarily the servant of your employer. You are a servant of God. He continues, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, when you are beholding God, thinking about God, considering God, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so here we see the secret to submitting to uh, earthly authorities that we disagree with, with a heart of worship. And it is to be preoccupied with the ultimate authority who is God. To keep our eyes continually on Jesus. Theologians talk about quorum Deo, that is living before the face of God, in the presence of God. And this is what what, what Peter is commanding us to do, that even as we submit to these earthly authorities, ultimately that we keep our face to God. And so if, if I had an audience with our mayor or with our governor or with our president, I would say, listen, I will honor you, I will submit to you, I will pray for you, but not primarily for you. Primarily for the greatest authority who is God. Several years ago, I read a story um, in preparing for a sermon and I have dug to try to find this story to make sure I get the details correct. And I could not find the story. And so some of the details are inaccurate. Okay, so take it with a grain of salt. But the major point is still there. So, so in this story, as I remember it, uh, J.I. Packer, who's this great theologian, uh, was having one of the seminary students over to his house. And they were talking and they decided to hop in the car and go down the street just a few blocks maybe to grab dinner or something like that. I can't remember what the reason was. But they, they came out of J.I. Packer's house and they get in the car and, and when they're in the car, they buckle up and then J.I. Packer remembers something. So he unbuckles, he's in the driver's seat, he unbuckles, he runs into his house and then he comes back out and sits back in and buckles up. And the seminary students is kind of curious what's going on and so he asks, is everything okay? And he said, yes, uh, everything is fine. He goes, I forgot my driver's license, and I know when I drive, I'm supposed to carry my driver's license. And the seminary, professor, the seminary student was thinking, you know, that's kind of silly. It's such a small thing, right, to, to do that, to obey the governing authorities in this way. But J.I. Packer said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. 
You see, in this very little way, he wanted to be faithful to his governing authorities, but his eyes were ultimately on Jesus, on the words of Jesus, who calls us to be faithful in the little things. And because of that, he knew God's pleasure, even in submitting to those little things in life. We are called above all to submit to God, to keep our eyes upon God, to experience the pleasure of God. And so it doesn't matter if 99% of the population is doing something different. We obey God. We keep our eyes upon God because we live before the face of God. And so how can we submit to God-appointed earthly authorities with a heart of worship, even when we think they are wrong, even when they are harsh? It's first by reclaiming our primary national identity as the people of God and living for that community. It's secondly, by beholding and keeping our eyes fixed on our greatest authority, who is God himself. But finally, it is by following our divine humanity. Verse 21 says, for to this, that is to suffer at the hand of the unjust, you have been called because Christ, the perfect sinless divine humanity, also suffered for you. And then here it is, listen close. He says, leaving you an example. <laughs> leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly. Again, he was beholding the Father who judges justly, even while submitting and suffering in this world. But here's the thing Christ is more than just our example, He is our Savior. Verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You know, throughout the Old Testament, often political figures were called shepherds. The kings were called shepherds of the people. And even today, we have this temptation, especially every four years, to look to political figures as our shepherds. We know that this world is in need of redemption. We all are very aware of that. And we know in order for redemption, we need someone who is more powerful than us that can be a redeemer. And so there is this temptation every four years to turn a political candidate into our redeemer. And we know when this happens, because if our political candidate loses, we're not only sad, we're crushed. And we distance ourselves from people who, who vote differently than us or think differently than us. But here we are reminded that there is only one redeemer for God's people. And he is not a president, he is a king. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus did not live to overthrow the governing authorities of the time. He probably could have. He had a, I mean, I know he could have. He had a great following of people. He had 12 legions of angels in his back pocket that he could whip out. But that not, was not what he was called to do. He was called to submit, to submit to the Father's plan and to the governing authorities, even to the point of death on a cross. 
Peter is calling us to follow the way of our master, which is a path marked with suffering and submission, but also with great purpose and joy and enjoyment of God. Let me end with this. Um, there's a letter that's been preserved from the second century, uh, and it's from Asia Minor, uh, the, the region that, that Peter was writing, writing to. And so this was maybe, I don't know, within 100 years of that region receiving the letter from Peter. And so uh, this may have been fruit of that letter. But this letter is from a Christian named Quadratus. Uh, and it is written in a defense of Christianity to a Roman authority, uh, an emperor named Hadrian in 129 A.D., and he was a pagan. Uh, he built temples to Venus and to Roma. Uh, but this is what the letter uh, said to him. This is, or at least certain excerpts of it. It says this. Christians cannot be distinguished from the rest of the human race by country or language or customs. They follow the customs of the country in clothing and food and other matters of daily living. At the same time, they give proof of the remarkable and admittedly extraordinary constitution of their own society. They live in their own countries, but as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens, and they endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else, and they have children, but they do not put their children to death. They share their table with each other, but not their marriage bed. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the law demands. They love everyone, but everyone persecutes them. They're unknown, but they, still, they are still condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are brought to life. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are defamed, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and yet they wish only good on those who revile them. When they are insulted, they still act respectfully towards those who insult them. When they do good, they are punished as criminals. When they are punished, they rejoice because they are brought to life. They are treated by the Jews as foreigners and enemies, and they are hunted down by the Gentiles. And all the time, those who hate them find it impossible to justify their enmity. Friends, we belong to a different world. We belong to a different country that has different standards, different values, and a different shepherd. How can we submit to earthly authorities with a heart of worship, even when they are wrong or we perceive them to be wrong or whether we perceive them to be unjust? It's by remembering our national identity. We are the people of God. This is who we first belong to. By remembering our highest authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, and living before his face, but then also by following his divine example of suffering and submitting, even to the point of death on a cross.
Listen, I know this topic over these past two weeks has been hard to wrestle through. But here's why I think it's, it's, it's a big deal. And it's not primarily about the mass, to be honest with you. It's not primarily about government. The primary reason why this is a, is a significant issue is because of hermeneutics. Now, I know that's a big word. Uh, what hermeneutics means is how we understand Scripture, how we translate Scripture and understand the meaning of it. And here's the thing. If, if, if the command uh, that... that everyone should submit to governing authorities can somehow be interpreted to not mean let everyone submit to governing authorities. And here in 1 Peter, uh, when he commands that we should submit to the authorities uh, in, uh, for God's sake, if we can translate that to not mean that we should submit to the authorities for God's sake, if we can make the Bible what it clearly says, not say that, then we have ceased being under scripture's authority and we have placed ourselves in authority over it. And why that is so dangerous is because other commands in scripture, which have a lot less uh, ink uh, given to them, such as uh, abortion or homosexuality or other things of that sort, or whatever it might be, we can then undermine those passages as well. And so we must submit to God's word when we like it, when we don't like it, Otherwise, our hermeneutics will be at such a point that we can make the Bible say or not say whatever we want it to say. And friends, that is a very dangerous point. It's a very dangerous place to be. And so here's the thing. I know that we're wrestling with this. And so if you're continuing to wrestle with it, would love to meet with you, would love to connect with you. If you just feel like, man, I can't, I can't come to a service with a mask on, you don't have medical issues, you just can't come. Uh, we do have an evening service that's there in your bulletin. We're trying to accommodate you and love you, but we also want to be obedient to God's word and submit to governing authorities. And so that's why uh, we have decided as the elders to submit to the governing authorities in this matter. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We thank you that Jesus submitted even to the point of death on the cross for our salvation, God. Lord, let us follow his example that we might live not for this world, but for the world to come and to extend the glorious kingdom of God, even through great suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.